0: to the Dividend Cafe, financial food
1: for thought. Hello, welcome to this week's Dividend Cafe podcast with our investment committee. Uh, We're doing this for the first time where we're not all in the same room together. Since we began doing these, it's my first time where I'm actually in New York City. Um, And so I'm sitting here at my desk in New York and... Uh, they're in California. Uh, we have Julian. I can see you uh, very clearly. day I think is right there behind you, or in front of you. There you are. Okay. And uh, and then Robert is uh, off there as well. And so, um, well, I think we're gonna make this work. Our production team has uh, got it all dialed in now, where we can hear each other, see each other, and they edit it and make it something uh, good for you all to view, good to listen to. But this week's topic is kind of a preview of the earnings season that we're about to go into. As we're recording it, it's Tuesday, October the 8th. And by this time next week, earnings season will officially launch. And so what I mean by that is that we will spend about four to six weeks in the fourth quarter where most of the companies in the S&P 500 are releasing their results from the third quarter and all their what their their quarter calendars are all different you know it, it, some of them it may be called something different but the point being july through september results will be announced and these quarterly intervals tend to be opportunities for companies to make updates in their business plan uh, updates in their strategic objectives and to kind of um, inform shareholders Uh, some of the good, bad, and ugly uh, going on within their companies. Oftentimes companies will announce dividend uh, increases or stock buybacks, and oftentimes they can share bad news as well. Uh, And then we talk a lot about the concept of forward guidance, and that essentially is sort of the third major category of what we look to get out of earnings season. Each company's earnings report will include what they did the prior quarter in terms of revenue, top line what they did the prior quarter in terms of earnings bottom line and then what they're projecting going forward whether it be revenue earnings different metrics in their business and i've become much more convinced over the years that that last category forward guidance tends to be what will move a stock out of their earnings announcement more than the others. Now, of course, if a company very unexpectedly blows away earnings results, that can cause it to a to, uh, stock to rally and vice versa. It can crash if they have really unexpected bad news. But when they, um, oftentimes they'll give good news and the stock will go down. And in those situations, it's always, almost always because they guided forward in some way that was maybe a little more negative so that's anyways me setting the table for what we want to discuss we're not going to get into any individual stock names here in this podcast. For those of you who are clients, of course, we're regularly updating you every single Wednesday in our weekly portfolio holdings report around the very nitty gritty of what's happening in our own company portfolio, our own portfolio companies rather. Um, but for today, I want our investment committee to have a conversation around our outlook for this earnings season, what we think is on the line, uh, what we're expecting and and a number of different ramifications uh, of all that so with all that said guys that's my long setup sorry for the long intro Um, Julian I'll start with you Uh, two quarters in a row now that uh, some earnings expectations were assumed to the expectations were assumed to be negative and and earnings outperformed that negative assumption that's are right we in for th- are we in for three in a row
2: um i, I would bet that we are because i think there's a tendency you know uh you know these companies all have a very professional investor relations department they're expert at guiding the street and and what they need is uh, they try to you know uh, make sure that every time they announce results they beat expectations so you know that what if you look at the hit or miss ratio of companies reporting, it's always much higher than 50%. So what's likely to happen again is like people have, you know, have been uh, a bit bearish with uh, with, uh, with uh, what's happening with the trade war and, you know, communication from the companies who are trying to manage expectations so that the day of the earnings report, actually they beat. So I would, I would guess that they're probably going to beat, but at the end of the day, it's not, as you said, what's most important. Because what investors are going to focus on are, rather than the Q3 results, you know, if you beat it, it's fine, but it's more the guidance for the next quarter, for Q4. And now we're entering also the last quarter of the year. So people are going to start asking questions about the next year outlook, you know, 2020. And that's where it's going to be uh, tricky because we, there's a, a lot of the visibility, visibility is not great. And so you can imagine with what's happening with the trade war, companies are going to be very, um uh, conservative with their guidance so that's where you know even if you have results that are going to be a ex- bit uh expectation if the guidance is conservative maybe you know it's not going to be um, you know the party we, we would be hoping
1: well Dea, is that is that going to be true for companies that are mostly domestic in their sales too is what julian's bringing up only a risk for multinationals or do you think there's domestic concerns as well I
3: think uh, it. I I think that as far as companies where their customer base is entirely in the United States, uh, I think that outlook is going to be different. They have less to deal with. But uh, I mean, it's very few companies, at least the companies we own, that have absolutely no exposure to uh, to to the rest of the global economy. Uh, but as far as companies that are focused on the domestic sector, I think their guidance will be different. I think their business optimism uh, could be different. The, uh, as far and to, to piggyback a little off what Julian said, is that, yeah, earnings might come in better, a little better than expected, given how they're engineered to kind of companies uh, are engineered to beat expectations a little bit because they set them a little low. Uh, and it's possible that there might be, uh, if you look at the wage data, wages have increased slightly, and there could be certain input costs that are starting to affect fundamentals in a, in a minuscule way. I don't think it's going to be anything surprising, and it's really going to come down to guidance. But sure, I mean, if, uh, if, if you're, uh, you compare two CEOs, one of them is the CEO of a, a firm that purely does business domestically, and another has you know, 70% of their... Revenue is generated overseas. I think the former is going to be uh, is is going to be a bit more optimistic and uh, about the future.
1: Robert, do you agree with Julian's assessment? Even if we look just to the multinationals, um, is there a possibility that companies are going to use? The trade war is an excuse to guide revenue estimates down. Do you think that there is a legitimacy in it? Um, how would you unpack that whole point of, of multinational companies reporting their results and factoring in some impact from the trade war into their three and six and 12 month guidance.
0: Well, I think Julian's uh, absolutely spot on in his prediction that that's going to happen. I mean, there's a, always been a tendency to my knowledge for, for these uh, companies to you know, pr- predict a little less than what might actually be the case. So there's a positive surprise, but I think going forward, it's, it's certainly maybe prudent for them to do that even more with the trade war going on. Um, we, we've seen that it's continued to be a source of uncertainty and it doesn't, doesn't seem to be abating at all. So I, I would agree completely with what Julian said around that.
3: Are you also asked, saying that uh, if there's any other issues going on with the company, that they're going to use the trade war as a, an escape goat? Uh, is that what you're,
1: is that awesome? I, I don't know. I don't know that I'm saying it. I think it's worth us questioning that um, on two fronts, both an optimistic one and a pessimistic one. You could have companies that guide lower forward based on uncertainty around where trade war could impact their underlying business and have it underwhelm, meaning it doesn't materialize to the magnitude that they are concerned about, and then you end up with an outperformance in a future quarter. So I think that that would be an optimistic possibility if companies do that. But then I also do think that there is a sense, particularly with some technology companies, that they have a little bit cleaner of an argument to make for where supply chain uncertainty could impact their business. And yet I'm not totally convinced that some of them, uh, and I know it's a little bit handcuffed that we're not gonna talk individual companies, but I don't think it's necessary. I think that some of them on the trade war could give them a little cover. And I'll give you an example, Daya. How many times have we seen since late 2014 uh, when the dollar began its kind of massive ascent, um, companies report missing a few pennies on earnings and say, but if it wasn't for the impact of currency, this or that.
3: It was almost and, every company.
1: <laughs> and, but how many times have you ever seen a company that beat earnings say, when, when the currency went in their direction, do you the favor of pointing out where currency was a tailwind? You see, You see sure. my point?
3: Yeah, close to none, yeah.
1: So I think that it's natural that they'd want to play things, Julian, for for best ball, Um, you know, try to use the trade war to position for some potential disappointment, but then also hopefully outperform and you get you get the best of all worlds. Uh, But let's let's not play psychologist with, you know, the company's CFOs right now. Let me just ask you, is the trade war going to impact a the Q3 results we're about to get? and B, the guidance we're going to get for future quarters.
2: Um, definitely. Um, I would say definitely. Um, I guess if you put yourself in the shoes of the CFO, you know, you're know, you going to be mid-October, you have to write this report and try to guide and you're going to say, okay, so we have this trade war discussions. We know what happens. Maybe next week they're you know, broken again. And then they know that there are some new tariffs coming um, in October, some in December. So they have to take that into account and... Um, and I don't know if you saw the, uh, I, I shared uh, with the team earlier, like uh, some graphs that was prepared by the IMF, you know, the new managing director would just uh, replace uh, Christine Lagarde and showing the impact of trade war. And it shows how, you know, the, there's a um, exponential basically impact on the economy. So, which is like, if, you know, if you don't sell this out quickly, the impact next year is going to be much worse than this year. Mm-hmm. So, I, I think so it's- So, wait, so uh, why, you know,
3: why is that the- what do you mean what as far as it why is it exponential well because i
2: guess of i guess because of the lag into the uh, you know flowing into the economy um you know the impact of trade war first on on trade and then on confidence and then so it's just have a it exponential impact as you know the yeah the feedback loop increases the impact on, on the overall economy so i guess that's where um i think you have to be worried and and the other thing uh, we haven't talked about is like if you look at consensus uh, for the 2020 on the S&P, at the moment, the market on the sell side is assuming almost like 10% earning growth for 2020, uh, which is, you know, um, not given, right? It's, uh, it's far from given if you have a trade war that's uh, still happening next year. And less, gro- I mean, IMF predicting uh, basically growth is slowing down. We're not talking about recession, but there's clearly less growth around the world with the US being like a safe haven at the moment.
3: It, yeah, it is tricky because when I look at the market, it, it, it's pretty uncertain to me what exactly is being priced in. I mean, do you think that it, uh, obviously a trade war is not being priced in at the
2: moment? Well, I guess I would say, I mean, I'm sure David has a, a strong view on that. on that. I would say that the, we are like somewhere there's a, you know, one hand we have like the Fed really helping, accommodating and kind of balancing, counterbalancing what's happening with trade war and slowdown in the worldwide growth. And that's why we're kind of, uh, you know, uh, uh, stuck here. And if you didn't have the Fed, we would be going much lower. And, if you, so, know, too, and yeah. if you if you have confirmation of recession happening, probably go lower. But now we still, we still don't know if it's a mid, mid-cycle adjustment or if it's a late-cycle adjustment. We don't know. In hindsight, we will know. The Fed is telling us it's a mid-cycle adjustment. They might be right. They might be wrong. Yeah,
0: I'll be, I'll be interested to see because we've seen with the trade war that it's been incrementally threatened this and that from the administration from powers that be. So I'll be interested to see the the divergence between uh, you know, the top line and the bottom line, see how it's actually affecting margins for a lot of these businesses, right? Because there haven't been too many quarters where we've actually seen real effects of price increases. David touched upon supply chain effects as well, but I think this will be interesting, especially for the, the tech sector.
2: Actually, it's interesting you mentioned that because there's like, I was checking some numbers from uh, I think uh, Goldman Sachs was saying that excluding financials and utilities so they're expecting the S&P margin actually to contract by 100 ah. BIPs. So they think that it's not the top line is still going to grow, but mm-hmm. margins are, are being impacted. Is and that I mean,
3: because of yeah. uh, in, input costs? Um, sp- sp- or, uh, well, you, okay. look, you look at you know, or labor costs and wage, cost. labor, wage, yeah. you know,
0: wage uh, unemployment dropping down to, so right. pretty significantly right. again. So those are yeah. all going to affect that.
3: Yeah, because it'd be interesting to see that breakdown, exactly what is attributable to, uh, you know, to, to the tariffs uh, as, far as, as far as that margin compression goes. And it's, it also could be, I mean, we're coming off uh, essentially what is a record year in 2018, uh, is catalyzed really by mm-hmm. uh, tax reform and, you know, record margins, record earnings. Right. And, uh, you know, I, I wonder how much of this is maybe just a cycle, a business cycle thing versus... Well, a lot of, a lot year of last reform. year people were
0: attributing yeah. to the tax cuts
2: yeah. job yeah. You know, And actually job Act the well, Goldman right? Sachs research yeah. is saying the same thing about Q1 and Q2, that most of the beat was because of under... Um, Estimates of uh, the tax benefit, basically, so people underestimated the benefit, and that really helped Q1. Well, but how how
1: does underestimating the tax benefit explain revenue beats?
2: No, that's not. Q1
1: was the largest percentage of revenue outperformance we've had in years. Q2 that subsided a bit; it was still well over half, but it was not as abnormally high. But I I think that um, it's one of the interesting discussions over this lengthy period of margin expansion we've been living through, how many um, are, you know, Robert brings up the tax issue. I think that obviously added to margins. But I I still think people, particularly bears, have to contend with what has been rather stubbornly impressive revenue growth.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Uh I mean, uh, how, wh- what would be the bears? Is, is there an argument to the revenue growth?
1: Uh, I um, well, cheap, well, I think cheap, there's cheap capital the or? argument could be the argument could be that it's going to end <laughs> that the okay, revenue okay. growth. Okay, fine. You've had revenue growth, but now you're not. I mean, I guess okay. that would be the argument. Some would probably say, too, Dea, that the Fed has um, promoted revenue growth because of them being providing an underlying. Uh, stimulant to economic activity.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I would, and it's very difficult to disagree with that. I mean, uh, if the cost of money is is uh, very very cheap, uh, companies are going to take maybe certain risks that they wouldn't otherwise, which is going to enable them to have maybe revenue that they wouldn't otherwise if the cost of borrowing was more normalized. So yeah, I mean, it, it the 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 Fed doing uh, as far as the monetary policy being so distortive c- makes things largely unanalyzable. Like Julian was saying, yeah, the China trade war is a bad thing, but then you have a Fed put, and who knows how it all shakes out. And so the mar- <laughs> so the markets, yeah, it's pricing it in, but it's also pricing it in the Fed helping. And uh,
2: yeah. but then that's maybe one of the key differences with Europe. If I mean, if you think about like uh, the growth that you have, uh, the U.S. enjoys and the U.S. S enjoy. Uh, higher growth is like the, the Fed or the government is allowed to, uh, to have, uh, run a, how much is it now? Is it 5 to 10% deficit, GDP deficit uh, every year, right? The budget of the federal government in Europe. You have a rule that's applied um, you know, by the, Euro, the Eurozone members, you cannot be above 3%. So basically, you know, if you go above that, like yeah, everybody is, um, yeah, is jumping on you, like you're really in big trouble. So even Spain and Italy, when yes, they were yeah. for a few years above that, you know. That, but seems now, more like a
0: guideline over there than a, than a hard rule.
2: Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah I, I, would, I would encourage people to look at Portugal, Italy, yeah. uh, Greece and Spain. In 2010, 11, 12, and see if they were limiting their budget deficits to three percent
2: at the time. No, but I get, I, what I'm saying is, like, 10 years later, I mean, the U.S. was still growing three, you know, was growing three percent, was still running big budget deficits. You, you, sh- you could think that, like, one have- year.
1: But I think, I think that that on the monetary side, the argument that uh, the central bank accommodation is the is the excuse for why companies have outperformed expectation. It, it has a very uh, difficult counter argument in Europe because certainly the level of quantitative easing and interest rate uh, reduction has been far more aggressive yeah. in Europe the last several years than America. Yeah. And they have been totally unable to create that organic yeah. revenue growth on the top line.
2: That's right. That's really uh, the mystery. Why is it impossible to get some growth out of Europe?
3: That's a, that's a great point, it's a great yeah. counter argument.
2: But what it, if what yeah. if
1: I don't think it's a mystery? What if I think I have an answer?
3: <laughs> uh, I'm guessing your well, I guess the answer is free market policy.
2: No, it is because uh, zero interest rate are, are uh, deflationary. I guess that's going to be your answer.
1: But but even then, it's not. If that were my answer, I would beg for another explanation too. Because my answer is that that it's part of a negative feedback loop, and that the excessive debt to GDP then for puts downward pressure on yields which then puts downward pressure on growth which put which puts more downward pressure on yields etc so in other words you're right but my answer is a bit more nuanced because I'm arguing for a vicious cycle theory of debt deflation. and I certainly believe the United States is extremely exposed to the same thing, but I think that's more of a forward-looking concern where I think Europe is actually living in it right now and Japan has been living in it, you know, for a couple of decades. Mm-hmm. So uh, you know really when when it comes down to it, The argument that we make as bottom-up people and company bulls on on particular cases where we feel very optimistic about a company's outlook, Europe's a great example because there have been standout companies, there have been standout performers, there has been innovation and and market expertise that's led to revenue growth and profit growth and dividend growth that have made for some good performers and yet that's happened in a Malou of borderline recession um, and and all of the kind of uh, macroeconomic challenges um, so so you know you tell me Julian and I'll ask Dan and Robert the same question as we enter this earnings season are you more concerned about the top down macroeconomic climate that we're in in the states or are you more concerned about some bottom up individual company news that we may end up hearing?
2: Well I'm um you know, my my job over the next earnings season, like four times a year, is really gonna be going to be to focus on the bottom up. Um, you know, um, feedback we get from each of the holdings we have and other companies we attract because at the end of the day, that's uh, you know these are the companies we own, and we're gonna have a few opportunities to to uh, you know go through these uh, materials and and understand how they're doing. So you have gonna have the press release, then, you know you have the guidance, and of course also you have the chance to. Uh, listen to management and when you do a few of these calls, you can hear the tone, you know, it might be different from one call to the next and the the word they use, that gives you a sense of how comfortable, how confident they are about the business and all the questions the analysts are going to ask, so it's it's really more an opportunity, you know, to take the temperature of the 30 plus uh, companies we own and then form an opinion based on that really more on the global economy rather than the other way around.
3: Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think it, that's a great way to form a, a good top-down opinion is by by doing some bottom-up work and listening to uh, what a lot of this management is saying regarding outlook and uh growth and so on. As far as uh as, as far as top-down versus bottom what what we're worried about was that the question what we're worried about as far as uh
1: yeah, I, I'm worried or, or at least more front of uh, center in your mind. Like, what are you thinking about more? Oh, okay. yeah. uh, what,
3: what I'm thinking about more is the top down is business confidence that is affected by U.S.-China trade relations that makes its way into the bottom line or makes its way into cash flows and earnings through rising input costs, uh, through business confidence, uh, companies not investing. Uh, I mean uh, that, that really starts to affect the behavior of these firms. So that's that's what I'm concerned about at the moment. And look, uh, you know things are never the coast is never really clear for equities. There's always something on the horizon and potential volatility and that's why there exists an equity risk premium. but, uh, but currently this is as far as anything foreseeable that, that's that's what uh, I'll be looking at. Yeah,
1: Robert, why don't, why don't you answer the same question and then I'll transition to kind of follow up to this. What, what are you thinking on all this, yeah, Robert? I mean,
0: on, on the top down level, you know, I'm thinking in, in the United States, I'm uh, I'm not terribly worried uh, for, for a lot of reasons. You had the NRF projection, National Retail uh, Federation projection saying that people are looking to spend more uh, this November, December holiday season than historically the average has been, which is good. You know, people are, are employed, um, you know, some wage gains, things like that. So they're going to have a little bit more uh, Christmas or, or holiday shopping. On the bottom-up side of things, I'm, I'm not necessarily worried about our own selections because I think we've, we've done the work to make sure the balance sheets are solid, um, we have the types of companies we want, but I think a lot of other um, holders of equities out there might be unpleasantly surprised. You, you, know, you look at the financial side of things, um, you have uh, net interest margin compression for some of the financials out there. I don't know how many uh, you know, people are, are ready for that to come through. Um, and then we talked a little bit about the tech space as well. We haven't necessarily seen the full implications of supply chain disruption out there. And I think people are going to be, uh, again, maybe supplies, uh, surprised unpleasantly out there, so.
1: Yeah. So, Dea so brought up the uh, idea of where the China trade issues could impact business confidence, and then therefore leak into the company results uh, from companies that are reporting. And obviously that whole theme about the trade war impacting business confidence and therefore business investment has been a macro theme I've been very, very plugged into for a long time. Um, uh, in this in the context of extending the economic cycle, the idea that CapEx would serve for as sort of a driver. But but since Dave brought it up in the idea about bottom-up impact, you know, I think we could acknowledge that there's some technology companies that are directly impacted in the in, because of supply chain considerations with China, certain industrial companies or aircraft manufacturers, those things are pretty direct. But when you look at consumer staples, let's say, soft drink companies, um, uh, you know, soap and diapers and, and household products, brand name type things. Is that the reason those companies have gone up so much? Is that they're disconnected from the trade war, Julian? Or, or are there other factors at play? Uh,
2: I would say there's probably a bit of both. There's uh, They're not totally disconnected because these companies um, get a lot of their growth from emerging markets. So you have to look at Asia. You have to look at South America. So, you know, if U.S. goes to war with China, Maybe, you know, the consumption of Coca-Cola or whatever beverage is not going to be impacted short term, but at some point you could think, you know, if it really goes bad, there might be some windows, uh, you know, if people uh, start retaliating with, uh, with whatever they buy in you know, the supermarket. But I think that's not the biggest uh, risk, I guess. Um, it's it's more about um, uh, really uh, finding where do you find the growth. Um, it's in these regions, um, but it's probably a, people uh, on these stocks because they are less they're not cyclical. That's why you know consider cons- they call consumer staples. They have a lower beta, and with the rates being where they are, uh, they look you know if you want income and yield, you're gonna go f- you know for, for these stocks that still yield you know give you better yield than most of the bonds you can buy out there.
1: So. so in other words, it's not that they, these companies have performed better because they're removed from the trade war, but it's also not necessarily they perform better because they're more defensive. It's they're more defensive uh, or they're removed from the trade war because they're more defensive. That, that, that they have a certain financial strength and a certain business model, and and a certain um, defensiveness that just sort of goes hand in hand with being more immune from the from the trade war. Let me give you an example b- before you respond. Uh, without going into any particular names, there's this. Um, a chain of retailers in the United States that's one of the largest companies in world history and and is the largest retailer in, in head count and, and sales in the entire country. And yet, I can't even comprehend what percentage of product on their shelves must have been made in China. And yet, they're up 26% year to date and, and, uh, and so have obviously performed not only well but even Better than the market by about a thousand basis points, and yet you would think retailers that are particularly exposed to selling low-cost imports from China would have this direct exposure. I'm wondering if that's sort of making your point. It's not just their exposure to trade war; it's what kind of business they are.
2: Yeah, I don't know. If, yeah, you want
1: to say? Uh, so I think that if you're a retailer.
3: Um, and I mean, if you're, if if you're a distributor in some way, if you serve as a platform, which I think is a retailer that you might be uh, talking about, I think that might be different than if you're manufacturing a lot of your, or your supply chain runs through, runs through China in many ways. And I assume that, uh, that any, any sort of company where supply chains run through China has been, has been discounted appropriately by the market. I mean... I, I mean I, maybe all those input costs haven't really been realized and come through but as far as that rhetoric that increases the likelihood of certain tariffs and input costs rising so it's it, it, it's all look, being able to analyze the supply chain and seeing exactly what's going to be impacted I think would it uh, you know, takes a great deal of analysis but but obviously different companies are going to be impacted differently and I'm, I'm surprised that there have been some companies, where uh, maybe the revenue isn't impacted at all, but maybe the, the uh, their their uh, their cost structure has the has a high likelihood of being impacted, and it the market hasn't uh, hasn't dinged that company as much as it maybe should.
0: I think scale is really important to note too for maybe some specific companies too. I mean, if you're if you're a big enough player, your your suppliers in China aren't going to be able to elbow you into you know raising prices. You're going to say, hey, you're you're going to take the burden there. Right, so I think that matters for a lot of these big companies, the ones that are kind of the, the yeah. safe harbors as well.
2: And I guess the the companies you, you have in mind is you know is very reliant on the U.S. consumer. And mm-hmm. as as of today, the U.S. Yeah. consumer is doing fine. The employment numbers are okay. We might be at a tipping point, and and that and and if you know if that changed, then they could be one you know starting to suffer. But as of today, it's still it's still, the U.S. consumer is doing fine. So all these businesses that are really. Uh, you know, correlated to the to the U.S. consumer are you know are you know performing fine, and the market is giving them uh, the valuation they deserve for that reason.
3: Yeah, and a lot a lot of this I think comes down to the strength of the companies and the strengths of the brands, and their ability to pass on higher costs to consumers. Well, look, if you run a commoditized business and your input costs go up, you're going to have to eat those costs. You mm-hmm. cannot pass those on to a consumer. So that's where brand, uh, the brand becomes really important. These uh, the strength of the company becomes really important, and really the how it fits within the industry. That analysis uh, it starts to pay dividends. I think. So.
1: No yeah. pun intended. Yeah.
2: And I guess that's why as well. You know, the staples trade at twenty times P, and then you can buy financials at ten or eleven times mm-hmm. financial. Mm-hmm. So that sounds maybe more exciting.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I think that it has to do with where a lot of these sectors started in their valuation, um, maybe at the beginning of the trade war, let's say, uh, or at some particular point where you want to begin analyzing this. But I, I do think that we're right now talking our book as, as dividend growth folks who obviously have what many consider to be a value bias. I gotta say, I think that what you're talking about, Dea, is mostly a risk in sentiment and sentiment, or at least initially, and sentiment is mostly a risk where something was already stretched in its valuation. So if, it's, if there's gonna be a, a long lag effect until there's fundamental disconnections in the economy from the trade war, which I think in most cases there would be, there are certainly some companies that would have an immediate traceable you know, quantifiable uh, impact, mostly supply chain oriented um, uh, technology companies or industrial manufacturers. But, my, but I guess the companies, what we've seen is that a lot of the companies started off at such a reasonable valuation, had um, such a fortress balance sheet, Julie, and that that's to me the bigger difference is if the whole world's gonna go through shaky times It isn't so much, let's not be exposed to the shaky times. It's as Nassim Taleb would say, be anti-fragile, be in a position where those shaky times don't disrupt you. Well, how do you avoid shaky times disrupting you? Have less debt, have less leverage, have as Daya brought up about uh, pricing power. Um, I I think that these are times, it's a trade war right now, but it could be a real war It could be a recession. It could be any number of geopolitical gyrations. Ultimately, there's something to be said, isn't there, for companies that happen to operate with a more defensive mindset.
3: Absolutely. I could not agree more. And a recession doesn't have to be a bad thing for a business. A recession can end up being a very good thing for a business. I mean, if you have a lot of competitors who have bloated balance sheets and have only been able – to expand their business by because of the cost of borrowing so low, and they're making plays maybe they shouldn't be making. And you have been uh, slowly plugging along and building your brand and uh, you know fortifying your balance sheet and making sure that you're going to be around for the long haul. A recession could really help you. Uh, maybe some of those competitors would be out of business because they're in a cash crunch, and you could expand your market share and you come out of there a lot stronger. So I think especially in times like this, it's. It's so important to have high quality companies because it really is uh it's it's the great stabilizer to your portfolio uh when when uh when times are tough so yeah.
2: Yeah I was I was just going to add that basically the companies we own they basically already survivors you know they've seen the mm-hmm. 2008 crisis they've seen the internet bubble most of them you know are companies that have been around for decades and uh, I don't know you could say like half centuries for some of them or more. And so, you know, they're not just new, and they, they have a business model that works, and sometimes, you know, they change, and that's when we have to decide to, uh, uh, to find some, you know, a new proxy to, um, um, to uh, be invested in the market. But, you know, I guess we feel quite comfortable with what we own at the moment, and we think, you know, with the relatively low leverage and the valuation that are reasonable compared to the market, uh, this not bad names. These are good names to own in, uh, in a tough environment.
3: I think so, too. Mm-hmm.
1: Robert, do you think that there's anything to be said for the fact that we're going to enter this earnings season? There's a lot of questions around whether or not the S and P can maintain this track record of earnings growth with all the macro challenges. There is a fair amount, not overwhelming, but a fair amount of skepticism or skittishness uh, 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 out there. You know, people's expectations are not high. And yet, the dividend growth in the names, uh, names like the ones we own, has been high single digits year over year. Does that does that dividend growth increase that you see in those types of names indicate a certain uh, contrarian uh, sentiment in your mindset? To
0: to an extent. Um it, it, it's somewhat a factor of, again, the companies that we own, you know, they're, they're doing a good job of keeping that dividend growth in line with their own earnings over time. So the consistency factor is, is really a result of the types of companies. Um, on the, on the other side of it, with regards to earnings, you know, people were predicting an earnings recession or there, were, you know, there were talks of this or that with regards to earnings, uh, taking a serious dip Q1, Q2, and then Q3, they're saying they're going to be negative year over year. Right. But we didn't see that. And I think, You know, they're lower than they were last year for a number of reasons. And my prediction is this is kind of maybe a a bottoming of the the earnings growth, you know, the bottoming of the second derivative of earnings growth. I I would say it's probably going to continue accelerating through the end of the year and into next year as well. And, and, you know, the the dividend growth year over year should probably follow that. But I wouldn't predict it to go, you know, double digits or anything like that. I think it would be high single digits more than last year to this year, Mm -hmm. but I think continued growth.
1: Joey, what do you think? Do you think that uh, dividend growth in this quarter is going to slow versus what we've seen in the last couple quarters, or, or is your feeling that as free cash flow goes, so goes the dividend? Uh,
2: I, I guess we've already seen most of the dividend increases for this year. Uh, you know, most companies like run a. Fiscal year calendar. So they have announced, like, if you look at the companies we own, I think 95% of them have already announced their dividend growth. And I, But I think the way they think about dividend growth is not over one calendar year, it's more over like three, four, five years. That's when they, you know, they have their business plan and they present, like, at an investor day to investors. So So, you know, regardless of what happens in the short term, they, you know, if they have to have a target of, uh, you know, high single digit dividend growth, they're going to stick to that for the next few years, regardless of the, you know, small change in the economy in the short term. So you will really need something massive to happen, like a 2008 recession for them to reconsider it. And the one we own, they usually have. 30, 40, 50% payout ratio maximum. So they can afford to go to one year. You know, if they have bad earnings one year, they can afford to go to 70% payout ratio. And then the next year, they'll be back to 30%. I think it's, you know, the the short-term, you know, volatility is not going to really impact the dividend growth. So volatility
1: is not going to impact dividend growth um volatility this quarter uh perhaps making some companies more attractive um i'll go around the circle i'll start you julian then go to Dea, then robert uh let's say earnings contract year over year low 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 single digits so there's some contraction in year over year growth but dividends uh excuse me earnings are down one to three percent versus this time a year ago does the market drop and if so does it drop meaningfully so,
3: so, so you said so earnings drop and dividend growth stays uh stays constant sorry
1: well yeah uh, but, but right now we're not going to the dividends although uh, i certainly would say i certainly am not anticipating that there's any change in dividend growth uh from from earnings dropping one to three percent um and in our portfolio at all uh, at it, but my, but my question, just to simplify, is around S and P earnings. If they drop one to three percent year over year, do you anticipate a market drop? And if so, does it become? Does it make the market more attractive? Mm.
2: Julian. Well. Um, I think uh, it's, um, it, it doesn't matter so much what happens on uh, this year earnings. I, I, I'm more worried about, okay, what, do we have to reassess next year earnings? Because at the moment, the market is still, I think, assuming around a 10% growth, and I might be a bit optimistic. So, uh, you know, uh, if it goes down to high single digits, 5%, 6 7%, um, that would not necessarily mean that the market needs to go down, but that means that there's not so much upside maybe for next year. But um, you know, all this, I'm not sure, justifies the market going much lower, given where the rates are.
3: Yeah, I, I, uh, I believe it's consensus uh, that the mm-hmm. the earnings are going to be are going to drop by that range, that one to three percent range, year over year. Yeah, is that not is that not correct, David?
1: Well, that's the consensus, but the consensus okay. has been wrong two quarters in a row. Okay, okay, okay. What?
3: Right, it's been wrong two quarters in a row, and I think the market has adjusted. I, I guess my point is, uh, I think if the earnings end up doing what consensus estimates they're going to do, I, I, I doubt the market is going to have a huge reaction one way or the other. And if if it does, that, that will probably present an opportunity. So yeah, that's. that's that's where I, where I'm at with that.
0: Yeah, I would I would tend to agree. I, I think it's you know largely priced, and there might be a little bit of a drop on the you know through through the quarter for this and that. But I'd be more interested in digging into which which parts of the market had had a negative attribution, right? Mm-hmm. So is it going to be a tech? Is it financials? And then you know what we care about most is the bottom upside. There's probably going to be some nice surprises, I'd imagine, from you know our holdings, things like that. And I'm excited for that, frankly. So.
1: Yeah. Some bargains. Yeah. Yeah, well, I, I think those are good answers. And I think that, that it's a good collective wisdom to be thinking about the potential opportunity that may come. Um, you know, One of the things I guess I would encourage listeners to be thinking about is the possibility that earnings disappoint. They come in line with consensus, which is at a little bit of a drop. They're, and again, I'm speaking across the whole market here, so kind of in a macro sense of S&P companies. You get, you get uh, uh, just kind of, you know, so-so quarter, um, but then the markets don't drop meaningfully. So you get this sort of no man's land where you're not getting great buying opportunities, not a, a meaningful sell-off like we got in the fourth quarter of last year, but then you're also not feeling great about the earnings growth. And then that's where I think, Julian, you really nailed it. Um, there is very little consensus to be found, let alone what I would consider intelligent uh, projection around what 2020 earnings are really gonna be. And, and I can't recall a time since the financial crisis where there was this much ambiguity as to what to expect a year out in earnings. Um, there is a plausible case to be made for 10% earnings growth. And there's a plausible case to be made with the right kind of trade war escalation and business slowdown and global uh, contractionary impact that you could be looking at a 10% earnings reduction. Remember, earnings are up so much since Trump was elected. You could have earnings drop 10% year over year and still be way higher than we were uh, at this time in 2016. So I don't know that I want to suggest there's a 20% margin of error around earnings, like they could be plus 10, minus 10, but I wouldn't suggest that there isn't. Mm-hmm.
2: No, I, I guess that's, uh, that's really the, the problem. It feels like going into 2020. Um, last year, I guess we got what happened in Q4 because in the Fed uh, did a bit too much tightening. This year, they are accommodative. So the big question mark, you know, uh, now is trade war. And... And, it, you know, I guess we could have a nice surprise. And, and then if, you know, it's um, started uh, this month or next month, then you could see uh, really a 10% <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, earnings growth next year. But and maybe we should, you know, be optimistic because nobody is pricing that. So there has to, always has to be a chance of what you don't expect always happens. But it's hard to see this happening uh, at the moment.
3: So with this with this uh, uncertainty around 2020 earnings, do you think there'll be more volatility? Well, not, that yeah, would what
2: do you guys think? Volatility is here to stay, and you also have election year. Uh, the only thing you, that we have with, with us at the moment also is like the Fed is, you know, it's been easing. Um, if you look at the projections now, um, expectation is like 80 percent of a third cut in October, and that's after the Jay powell was talking today. So he wasn't really pushing back on trying to, mm. you know, delay the next cut to December, so like now it's pretty much there and it will be hard for the Fed not to do a cut in October.
1: Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. yeah I, I think that um, that it's good to, to recognize that there's gonna be multiple inputs to how a lot of this will play out. But here, here's what I'd say, if you are gonna have a five to 10% earnings deceleration next year and you're starting off at a 17 and a half multiple, it's almost impossible to see how you can get to a positive total return. Um, Because you're gonna have to have a multiple that from 17 and a half in a declining earnings market is gonna grow high single digits, which would put you at about 19 times. Mm -hmm. To Julian's point, the Fed would like to do everything they can to help that, and yet I have a hard time believing that that anticipation is not priced into this market multiple now. In other words, the Fed could hurt the market by not accommodating, but I'm not sure how much more they could help the market uh, with further rate cuts at, at the level that they're already at. Um, I could throw a wild card out there today. Jay Powell was talking about more balance sheet activity and saying it was not the same as quantitative easing and he's providing a technically academically correct answer. But what if they got rid of that and just said, nope, we actually are doing QE4. I would anticipate that that would be a pretty good way to get the market multiple even higher. (laughs) Now, again, these are not things I'm forecasting. These are not things I think that we as an investment committee are expecting or making asset allocation decisions around. But I'm trying to think as to the ways. why sometimes getting certain premises right is not enough. Because the way that the premises move to a conclusion can be very, very unexpected. Robert, what do you think about all this?
0: Well, the the QE but not QE comments are still... Kind of having me me think a little bit today, but I think I think you're absolutely right about all of it, and I think the the comments from from Day and Julian are are near unim- unimprovable. I mean, it's all about the the uh, the individual companies that we're looking at going forward. Um, and you know, you said something extremely wise as, as usual. That, you know, when you're starting at a certain uh, PE, where, where are you going to go from there if uh, everything doesn't go right? If the plan doesn't come to to transpire? So.
3: Yeah, yeah, I, yeah. I, t- I I couldn't agree more. Uh, focus on the individual companies as far as. The way, I mean, it sounds like the way you put it that way. Yeah, there's already a lot of uh, monetary policy that's uh, that's dovish that's been priced in. How is it possible that earnings could decline and then multiples expand? I think I, I think that would be very difficult. I think QE4 that that's probably that probably would make it happen. Maybe if the trade war had escalated and then we get towards the end of the year and then there it's clear sailing somehow. There's an agreement. Uh, totally ironed out. I think that's also a way that the stock market could multiple could could expand. Uh, there's not a lot of, not a lot of ways to see, uh, to see that multiple expanding. Uh, so,
1: so, yeah. so let, let me kind of get us to a point of wrapping this up and I'll let each one, each of you make some closing comments and feel free in your closing comments guys to go anywhere you want, recap some of the stuff we've already talked about or offer up a new, Consideration, but here, here's where I would kind of leave things. Um, what we've talked about today, without a whole lot of direct, intentional, purposeful, you know, context, is an incredible argument for being bottom up, selective, and yes, dividend growth minded. Because you right now have very compelling arguments that are not based in certainty they're just based in in reasonable probabilities of um, challenges to market valuations. You have the trade war uncertainty. You you have the potential for, if you're an index investor um, or maybe a mutual fund investor who owns, you know, hundreds of companies, you you have a reliance on multiple expansion because even if the earnings uh, growth is a little bit better than expected, no one believes you're gonna get 10% earnings growth easily. And yet to go up 10% for a year in the market without 10% earnings growth means you're relying on more multiple expansion. You're, remi- you're relying on the PE going higher. And I think that most people would say that starting off at 17 and a half times, and and by the way, when I say 17 and a half times, this is very important. That is not because we've been going higher and higher and higher. The market right now, October of 2019, is at the same place that it was in January of 2018. Now, the earnings are much higher and so the multiple sort of calibrated around that but my point being that it isn't like well we've gotten this great multiple expansion and as the market's risen we're, we're just at kind of an expensive level and i think that that focus robert talked about it individual companies um, the sensibilities around where dividend growth is something I Julian is very uh, focused on and unpacking these earnings results I, I don't know I can't imagine a better more sensible risk adjusted way to approach equity markets right now than in the context of dividend growth so uh, I am getting the worst closing comment out of the way first so I'm now done but I'm gonna let uh, we'll just go in the same circle Julian then Dan, and then Robert you'll close us out
2: well, I, I guess um, at the end of the day, for me, it's I've been, you know, a stock picker for like fifteen, twenty years, and um, it's always about owning companies you feel comfortable owning at night because you think they will survive, because you think you know they don't have too much leverage, because you understand what they do, um, because they have a clear strategy, they have buyer to entries, they are not uh, cr- they don't have crazy valuation, and I think that's really what we own. Uh, you know, we uh, we have a portfolio that's. Uh, that uh, has weighted average uh, P multiple of 13, and that's paying 4% dividend, and you know that's uh, that's compared to the S&P at 17 and and uh, the 2% uh, dividend yields. So I feel quite comfortable with that going into in this environment. And and I agree. I mean, it's easy to um, what you say about the multiple expansion is is really key. I mean, people forget that they make a lot of money from. Earnings growing every year for the last uh, probably, what, nine years now, since mm-hmm. 2009, and also gaining multiple, going from 10 to 17. So you had the, you know, double whammy, and now from 17 is how to get much higher. The only way you can get much higher is from Tina, is from the fact that the Fed is mm-hmm. telling you, put your money in equities because we're not paying you anything for having bonds. Mm-hmm. But it's not going to go to 30 times unless you have like some crazy uh, 2001 uh, uh, internet <laughs> bubble. In which case you really don't want to be in uh, in uh, in uh, in an index.
3: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Very, very much so. I think that, uh, yeah. And uh, for the past ten years, yeah, the the stock market's gone up. Uh, I think around two hundred and fifty percent since since two thousand nine, January two thousand nine. And earnings have been up a couple hundred percent. And uh, seventeen times. To- I mean, look. Uh, if you have a strategy that's predicated on multiple expansion, I mean, good luck to you. That's a pretty hard thing to predict, given it's depending a lot on the uh, the mood at the mo- mood of the moment. So we stay away from strategies that are dependent on uh, multiples, and it uh, makes things analyzable and make, makes things simple. So uh, you know, Robert and David and everybody here has touched on it. We're, we look for bottom up names. We're looking for bargains. We're looking for companies that have pricing power. And we're looking to collect about 30 of these names and sit on them for a very long time. So yeah, so at the end of the day, we, we do things in a, in, a lot, in a simple way that takes away a lot of this uh, guesswork around psychology and, uh, and you know what, what the market might be feeling or not feeling or, or your outlook. So yeah, bottom up and keep focused on the long-term.
0: Yeah. Um. Earnings season is, uh, is the best. Yeah. I mean, especially in, in times when there's maybe challenging macro factors or external factors coming in, when you look at the data, which is what earnings represents, you're able to really separate the wheat from the chaff in terms of the companies that, that you want to own, you do own, or, or you shouldn't own. Um, so I, I encourage, you know, people to get interested in earnings. I know that we, we certainly are over here. I think Julian and, and the team are going to be plugging into that, but, um, very exciting times, um, for us going forward. And I'm frankly excited about our companies.
1: Great stuff, guys. Thanks for listening to this week's Dividend Cafe. Our investment committee will rejoin you, uh, of course, next week. And in the weeks ahead, one of the exciting things we have coming up is our annual due diligence trip. Both uh, Dea Pernas and Brian Seitel will be joining me in our annual trip. Uh, Lots of meetings with our money managers and portfolio uh, uh, relationships, hedge funds, uh, and things of that nature in the couple weeks ahead. So, count on hearing more recap around a lot of that discussion, the follow up in earnings season. Uh, we're all staying quite busy with this, but great discussion, guys, and uh, I'll see you back in California, okay?
0: for listening to The Dividend Cafe. Financial food for thought.